the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, tonight we're going to get our our monthly or bi-monthly report now from Nan Baker at the Cuyahoga County Council. Nan, thank you as always for joining us. How are you tonight? Absolutely. Yes, thank you for having me back and giving me a chance to give you our county council update. So thank you. It's very good. Well, the first thing we're going to be talking later to to Chris uh, Phillips about COVID. How are we doing with COVID-19 here in Cuyahoga County? Well, thankfully, I can report that we are doing well, that uh, we are all in a very safe uh, environment. And as everyone knows, the restrictions uh, have all been uh, relaxed and uh, mandates have been relaxed even in our own Cuyahoga County building, which was one of the last to finally uh, rule that uh, masks and distancing were not mandated, that only if you feel that uh, you want to or need to or are still somewhat in fear uh, can certainly do whatever precautions that make you feel safe. But uh, as far as any mandates go, everything has been uh, uh, stopped and People are living their lives uh, as we all hoped we would, and I think this will continue, and there's really nothing more to report than that. Well, that's good. Let's hope that it continues on. I know we have the uh, what they call the BA2 variant that is floating around, but it doesn't seem to be putting people in the hospital as the other variants and the earlier versions of COVID-19 were, so... Let's hope we're on a continuing course as the uh, weather gets better and more people get outside and separated naturally uh, from each other and separated. That should make things better, one would hope. And if, uh, and if I may say, uh, the reporting now is shifting from the number of cases to the number of hospitalizations and deaths. So they're no longer counting, as they did before, uh, the number of cases. They are more concentrating on the impact of the hospital. So that also is a change in reporting. How, how are we doing now with the uh, Cuyahoga County area hospitals? Are we at a low ebb? We are, we are low. We are low. We are manageable. Um, deaths, uh, I was reporting every week to our West Shore mayors as to the updates every week of the cases, uh, hospitalizations and deaths. And I finally finished because there was really nothing more to report. Um, so we are very in a very good place when it comes to COVID-19. Are, are we re- uh, seeing a return of our economy here with restaurants and services and, and so forth? We, and does that reflect itself in an increase in things like sales tax going up, revenue yes, coming it up? Does. Yes, Yes. Uh, you know, we thought the sales tax actually would be more diminished Uh, during the COVID time than it was, but it really wasn't as bad as predicted between P2 
people ordering out and um, picking up their groceries, picking up their restaurant um, meals, um, buying online, which we also now receive that sales tax. It wasn't as devastating, but certainly now people are out and feel freer uh, and are free of fear when they go out to restaurants. So, yes, um, the economy is much better. We're seeing people returning to their offices, still in a hybrid, but for the most part, they're venturing back into the office. Oh, excellent. It, it seems to be that way as we're looking at things. We've been to um, Playhouse Square to see some plays, and yes. even though people are still wearing masks, the, the crowds are, are thick and full, Yes, which uh, sort of nostalgic going back to 2019. So it's amazing. Uh, by the way, we still sort of reflect back in somewhat amazement that we spent two years not doing things. So I know. We're, I think we're savoring what's happening. Right, and there is such a um, a wanting of getting out. I mean, I think that we're seeing a surge. We used to call the cases surging. We're now seeing surging of people wanting to get out and be together and go to events and and connect with each other and families getting together. It's, it's really good to see that uh, that has also come back and come back, you know, in, in good number. So very positive. Well, it's wonderful. And we have to enjoy the moment. Um, yes. uh, ERP, you mentioned to me earlier about ERP, the uh, computer programming going on at the county. Yes. That's something that still needs to be done. What's happening? Well, it's been a long road. I mean, the ERP uh, internal commute, computer system was there before I got to county council, but I've certainly been engaged in it since I've been there because it, it needed oversight. Uh, unfortunately, it has gone through a very difficult process. Different leaders of this ERP system, just a lot of setbacks. But I will say now, here we are in, in uh, 2020, and our first payroll check will be cut April 1st. And that is a huge milestone. It's one of the, if not the last piece of the ERP that needed to be uh, overcome. And that's a large uh, obstacle. And um, we are all kind of crossing our fingers. We are that are helpless in how this is rolling out. But those that are in the trenches uh, are very, very confident that uh, this payroll will launch and it will launch successfully and our employees will get their first ERP paycheck on April 1st. That, that is well, what, does ER, what does ERP stand for? You know, I should know that. It's, it's a... Uh, oh, I don't mean industry. to put you on the spot. That's right. Yeah, I, I should know that. It's an industry term. Uh, it does stand for... I'll look that up and, and let you know. <laughs> but, oh, that that is fine. But what's the cost of this whole system? Because I know we talk about it from time to time. Well, when it was first, it's a costly uh, thing. Visited, yeah, it was twenty twenty one million, and then they had a four million dollar contingency. So it was a twenty five million dollar investment. But that twenty five million mm. over the last eight to ten years, which is how long we've been working on this, at least eight, uh, mm. has turned into about a $34 million. So it has been um, an expensive venture of trying to bring our antiquated computer system, which it was, 
into an update, uh, updated computer system where all of county is going into the same system. It is, it needed to be done. I mean, we are a county. We need to be, um, using a system that is up to date and accessible to everyone who needs to use it. It was just an overwhelming, um, project. In some cases, going from handwritten notes and procedures and, and working in uh, silos to a complete revision of our uh, mm-hmm. the way we do business. So it, it was... Sounds like uh, one of those un- undramatic housekeeping things that had to be done sometimes. It had to be done. It certainly isn't exciting, but it is uh, grueling and, you know, and, and like I said, probably more than what at the time they thought was mm-hmm. needed to be done. And here we are in 2022 and we are launching the last module which is the payroll system. Oh, my. Uh, switching gears a bit, uh, since we we talked last, uh, we had uh, the Russians invade Ukraine, and we have yeah. so far over 2 million people leaving Ukraine as refugees, and I anticipate more. Uh, what kind of impact is the county anticipating with regard to refugees from Ukraine coming here to the Cleveland area, to the Northeast Ohio area, and what what can the county do to help these people if they do arrive? Right. Well, certainly we have made a public statement uh, supporting those in Ukraine. So there certainly is um, uh, county council members and the executive and all of administration stepping up mm-hmm. and wanting to do what they can. Um, you know, with the ARPA dollars, we're able to increase what we need to do, not only for those in Ukraine looking for a place um, to stay, but also for all of our uh, county council or county residents that are looking for uh, shelter and uh, food and places that are ready and willing to to take on those. Those families that are here um, are, are helping. Friends of those in Ukraine are helping. There's a lot of assistance that uh, we anticipate. We, for example, in the ARPA dollars, are going to be extending the Cleveland Food Bank $5 million just to make sure that there's enough there for them to um, offer the needed food that, uh, that we anticipate will be coming. Uh, homeless shelters and um, you know, opportunities that uh, will help not only those that will be coming to Cuyahoga County, but also to those that are generally in need and uh, need better services than what we've been giving. Well, let's let's, uh, get back to that topic uh, after our break. Uh, We're taking a break right now. We're talking to Nan Baker from the Cuyahoga County Council. This is Nick Phillips on The Advocate here on WHK. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our segment. Next segment of the Advocate, we have with us Nan Baker from the Cuyahoga County Council. 
Man, as always, thank you for joining us and uh, letting us know what's going on at the county level here, Cuyahoga County. Of course. Uh, we were talking about Ukrainian refugees. Um, if and when it, it turns out that we get a number of them coming here, uh, I suppose that the county may be ready to react as necessary. Would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, the county council and the administration both support our Ukrainian people. And when they come, we will be ready. And that is the um, answer to um, those that are looking for shelter. Good, good, good. You, you mentioned, um, I think, the American Rescue Act funds that have come into the county. Uh, from our prior conversations, we had uh, millions of dollars uh, sitting here with that. Uh, about how much money do we have still left part of those dollars that uh, well, we have available? Yeah, we have actually all of it. I mean, we are just now rolling it out. We've taken our time to look at what the needs are of the county where this money can be best spent. So we have just started to roll out. In fact, on March 15th, we rolled out a number of different um, projects that this money will be spent. And then we are going, and we rolled out again on March 24th, which was just yesterday, another um, list of projects. And finally, we will wrap up on March 31st. Um, more of the projects that we think uh, we need to assist or um, engage to make sure that this money is spent properly. And, and our job on county council will be to oversee uh, these these funds. So it's uh, a lot of work and a lot of oversight, but it is also a very positive um, in initiative because We've never seen money like this. $240 million over two years needs to be addressed and by 2024 needs to be spent or we have to give it back to the federal government. So it's, uh, it's a pretty uh, overwhelming, I think, at times, but also a project that everyone is excited to, um, to begin working on. You, you remind me of a phrase used in government uh, with regard to government budgeting and uh, spending is that you, quote, use it or lose it. And it sounds like that's <laughs> applicable here. So right, can you, right. can you give us an idea of what uh, kind of projects that uh, this money is being spent? $240 million seems a sizable amount. It is a sizable exactly. amount of money. What, what are we well, getting from that? Few, yeah, the first few that have been rolled out, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Cleveland Food Bank from $5 million. We have workforce training. We want to invest $3 million. Uh, homeless shelter improvement, $20 million. So that is quite an initiative, and we haven't identified all that we want to do. So I don't want to jump the gun in, in talking about it at that in specific. But that is certainly a place where we feel dollars need to be spent. Also, lead mitigation. We all know the need for that and 1.6 million have been set aside for that. So a number of different things. I will also say the county council, there's 11 of us, and we have put aside 66 million, each of us with 1.2 million to take back to our own district. So each district will see an impact working with our mayors 
of what it is that they have been struggling with trying to accomplish perhaps in a community project. So I have talked to all five of my mayors and certainly there's always need and they are um, looking forward to working with us to bring up bring a proposal and a project that they would like to see uh, either finished or um, they, they may be shovel ready. Uh, lots of different things, as you can imagine, in each city that um, will be impacted by these dollars also. So that, that's exciting for us, too. Well, it sounds like it's a, a getting to uh, clean up some of these projects that are out there that have been around for a long time, and now the money allows you to catch up to a whole lot of things. So should uh, bring everybody up, up ahead on things, I would think. Yes, so, yes, well. yeah. Going back to another topic we've talked about is that the um, upgrade of the county jail. What's happening? Is anything happening? Well, we're still struggling uh, trying to uh, finalize the jail location. So there have been uh, several that we've looked at, narrowed them down, but it's not an easy uh, task. Not everyone wants a jail near them or in their backyard. And uh, that has been some of the issues that we've come across, finding enough acreage in Cuyahoga County and trying to keep it close to downtown, not necessarily in downtown, is also uh, a challenge. Um, primarily trying to keep it in Cleveland uh, doesn't always offer the acreage that we're looking for. So it's, it's, been, um, it's been a challenge. No property has been... Uh, secured. So we are continuing to look. Um, we are looking for more of a campus-like jail, two-story, uh, not the tower that we have now that is um, ineffective, according to the experts um, that understand jail and population. I will say that our inmates is still high for our jail population. We're at 1655 the last time we, it was reported only a few days ago. So um, it, it is um, concerning that we try to keep that population down. Probably well, what, is the, what is the rate? How many uh, inmates or prisoners is that jail designed for currently? You have 1655. How many is the official limit? The capacity is about 1,800. When it gets past 1,800, then we are then overcrowded and looking for ways to um, separate and put people, put inmates in places longer than they should be. Uh, given the tower, mm -hmm. not an efficient way of watching prisoners, it's, um, it, it makes it harder to do that. The um, diversity center, which is really a companion to the jail and trying to reduce that number, is now in operation. We've had so far about 180 to date that have used the diversion center. So, and, and as of this past Friday, that last Friday, we had 14 that were using the diversity center. So it is not up to capacity as we would like to see. And many of those are referred by family. It's not by what the intent at the beginning was at the time when someone is arrested. Thought law enforcement would do that, right? Right. So that, because some, you know, not everyone, in fact, most 
don't qualify for the diversion centers. It's a federal offense. If it's an offense that has um, that is criminal, they can't, you know, they they can't release them to a diversity center. So it is. Is is the diversity center a building? And so where is it located? It's the. Um, ooh, I had that. I will look that up for you. It's, the name just escapes me. But it is a uh, a center that um, can fit up to 50. And it's renovated okay. right now. And we are thinking of building a new diversity center. But with the capacity that the way it is, we're not sure if that's really um, the best place to to do that. Hmm. The, so we get an idea of what's going on down town at the Justice Center area. Um, we, we used to have the courts, well, we still have the courts and the jail and the Cleveland uh, police headquarters. Did Cleveland police move out of that building? Is it vacant now for their half? Yes, the Cleveland police have their own. They are no longer there. And is that uh, their facility they vacated, is that being used for anything at this point, or is it just vacant area? It is not. It is vacant. And uh, the thought is what's left is the jail and the justice center. And the jail, of course, is highly um, discussed of moving. And what will happen to the courts is still undetermined. So a lot there to to consider in uh, trying to figure out where everyone should go. The judges that are at the justice center now are comfortable there. They really don't want to uh, leave. They don't want to move. They don't want to move. I can, I can and understand. They well, want it to be, yeah, they want it to be downtown, which, of course, mm. is a very expensive place to build a new justice center. So it's not an easy process. Um, well, we'll, well, we'll have to come back to you on that. We're out of time now. But uh, Nan Baker, thank you so much for the update. We'll have to have you on, of course, again next month to uh, update all of these situations with all the money, the millions of dollars moving through the county here. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Look forward to talking with you again. Thanks, Nick. Same here. Thank you, Nan. And we'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit about COVID and health in general. And with us is Chris Phillips. Chris, thanks for joining us again. I always love having you on. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. It, it, well, it is. Uh, I'm glad you It's great for me, too, to have you. Uh, just for the people who haven't heard uh, of you, explain what your position is and how many people you deal with and are responsible for on a daily basis. Absolutely. So I'm director of clinical operations for a very large primary care group that's national. Um, well over 3,000 providers, well over 3 million patients of all ages. Um, so yeah, I've, we have 15 nurses that work around the clock 24 seven, uh, taking, uh, calls, high acuity calls, um, 
And we've really had, unfortunately, a front row seat to this whole COVID adventure. So I think when you have me on the phone, I'm kind of giving you the practical front line um, assessment on, on what's going on. What are the phone lines like for us? Well, that's, that's true. I think with uh, 3 million people and uh, these calls coming in 24 hours a day, that uh, you have a real-time idea of what's going on with that size and that segment of population. Uh, well, you know, for the uh, for the years now, we've been talking about COVID, and uh, it, it seems like COVID is sort of waning now. What what can you tell us about how COVID is going with your 3 million patients? Yeah, great news. I mean, I think, you know, hopefully as I've been on your show, I've been kind of the, the voice of, practical reason, like what's really happening out there, apart from all of the the political, you know, views and all of that kind of stuff. It's definitely gotten very quiet, settled down. Um, there's really good reason to take a deep, fresh breath and enjoy life, enjoy summer again. The, the, the calls have been very quiet. Um, we also work with a number of very large, uh, high-profile employer groups and schools, and those have all been doing fairly well. Um, we had a, a national briefing yesterday with our medical director, and she brought up an excellent point. Um, there's five phases of a pandemic, and the first phase, I won't go through all of them, but the first and worst phase is dissemination. That's, that's when a pandemic first hit. You know, that's what we saw about, you know, two years ago where the whole world was negatively impacted. That's phase one. And all the way to the right, phase five, the last one is eradication. The fifth and final stage of a pandemic is where you can totally eliminate a virus. Um, So we're not quite there yet. Uh, She gauges us right in the middle of control, phase three of five, where COVID has become an epidemic disease that's relatively controlled now. You know, we we definitely have um, a whole array of vaccines and treatments and understandings with current treatments on how to, you know, hopefully quickly move people to safety through this COVID experience. So we're in a control stage of the pandemic. We're hoping to eventually push it to an elimination stage, which is stage four. And, uh, you know, heaven be graced with us. We can get to eradication eventually, but we're at the control stage. How, bottom line, sort of how safe right now can we feel to return back to what we thought was normal back in 2019? Are we there? I do. I, I mean, I, I really, really do, especially with the warmer weather coming up, especially when it comes to being outdoors, especially when it becomes, you know, outdoors or with known people indoors, you know, relatively small family gatherings. Yes. Now, um, I, I'll tell you, I just flew out to Texas this week and uh I was wearing my N95 mask, you know, uh, so I'm not ready to walk through an international airport or be on a plane for three or four hours without my mask, which is absolutely fine. And, and of course, the FAA is still regulating masks, thank goodness. But the CDC, I just thought, moved to a really brilliant uh, platform now. If you were to Google uh, CDC data tracker, uh, they've moved to a low, medium, high rating, community rating and map of the country, and it's based on real-time data. So kind of think like a weather report or an air quality report. 
you know, when you're kind of looking at whether you take your umbrella or if you have asthma, if you've got to watch the air quality, the CDC has a very uh, robust map of the country. And it has the country broken out into green, you know, low, yellow, medium, high. And, um, you know, 90% of the country is low and green, looks beautiful. And uh, you can kind of look at that. You know, if you're going to be going to Montana, uh, you know, this weekend, you may want to be a little bit more careful. That's one of the, the high areas. But for the most part, we're in a low. And um, it, it's pretty refreshing for us. Yeah. What's circulating around the country now with uh, COVID? Uh, are, do we still have the uh, Omicron or are we looking at the, what they call the BA2 variant? Uh, what What is the dominant um strain of COVID now that's out there? And does it matter to us what's going on out there? I'm not talking about yeah, I mean, the word, of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the word in the healthcare community is still BA2 is the predominant somewhere around 35 to 50%, you know, and that is important for us in healthcare, public health, population health, epidemiology, because that kind of tells us the profile of this particular strain which seems to be, you know, highly contagious, yet very weak as far as uh, its strain on the human body. Um, so, yeah, what few cases I saw kind of dribbling in of COVID last week were very, very mild. Uh, people hardly knew they had it. Um, so, yeah, it's important to us in epidemiology as we're listening, keeping our eyes out on Europe and Asia, um, watching their reports. We're trying to see what variants they're identifying, if it's still the same DA2. Uh, yeah, so for us in, in the weeds, in, in the healthcare field, yes, important. But for the common person, you know, just, just kind of watch the main credible news feeds and listen to your doctors. We've been seeing commercials on TV, the sort of animated commercials, uh, talking about the, if you do get COVID and uh, you test positive for it, uh, contact your doctor and, and get some medications quickly. There's some medications out there that uh, people should be thinking of if they're newly infected with COVID. Well, what's that about? Oh, right, right. Yeah, of course, we've really been following this one. Um, you know, that that's true, okay? So there still continues to be great progress and research done on three main levels, Okay. Um, the first one is anti-inflammatory drugs. Now, you know, those are your, your prednisones and your, your, um, your, your steroids. steroids. Anti-inflammatories, yeah. So we, those are existing. We recognized that right away with Delta. When, when people were getting really sick, it was more of an anti-inflammatory reaction. So they're still fine-tuning the use of those. Now, once again, those are definitely more for hospital-level patients. Um, then what you're referring to is, is we had a nice uptick in new antiviral drugs. That's the Paxlovid, and there's there's also one by Merck, and the Paxlovid, of course, is from Pfizer. That was also promising. Uh, what's kind of put that one uh, a little bit quiet right now, as it's been approved, is you have to um, get it in the first several days um, of a positive PCR test, and that's that, that still, we believe, still has like an 89% effective rate in keeping people out of the hospital or from death. Um, I think what's happened with this new strain is it's either been, um, we've had so few, you know, we've had a great reduction in new cases or the new cases 
are so minor that people really aren't aware. They're not catching that, um, uh, you know, one to three day window. Uh, so they're just not interested in it. They're just getting over it and moving on. But there's still promise in these. And we still need to uh, continue to keep them on the shelf, get them ready, you know, in case something worse comes along. They seem to be working, um, you know, against um, the, the mutations, the variants fairly well. And then finally, there's the antibody therapy, the monoclonal antibodies, which once again, um, with Omicron, they became pretty much ineffective with Omicron. So those have been kind of shelved for right now. But we're all keeping an eye on these three therapies and having ready to go. The uh, antivirals that you can take uh, within the first uh, one to three days of being positive. And we just have about a minute yet. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and uh, see if we can readdress the issue. Uh, who does this work for? I'll, I'll come back to that. But we're going to take a short break now. We're talking to Chris about COVID and where we are now at the end of March 2022 with the, uh, the COVID situation. So uh, don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of the Advocate for tonight. Uh, we're talking to Chris Phillips about COVID here at the end of March, early April of 2022. And the uh, the questions are, where are we? Chris, you were saying during the last segment that uh, if you do pick up the uh, COVID, which now would likely be the variant uh, is it, uh, BA2, that you have one to two days to get uh, antiviral medication to help mitigate or reduce the effects of that virus. And my question, two questions, question number one, is this over the counter or do you need a prescription? And then secondly, uh, is it for everybody? Uh, If you're fully vaccinated, uh, do you need the antivirals? Will they still be of any use? Right. Yeah. Excellent question. So this is very promising. I mean, the, especially the Pfizer drug, um, you know, that, has made it through trials and been approved by the FDA, um, you know, had close to a 90% uh, efficacy um, with high-risk patients, keeping them out of the hospitals, keeping them from dying. Um, It's still a law of numbers, though. Um, You know, when you hear the numbers thrown around, there's like 2 million doses ordered, a couple million out there. And when you compare that to the nation, it's it's not really going to be like, you know, Skittles on the shelf that you can just grab and go. Um, there's still, you still need a prescription for it, number one. So you really want to be close to your primary care provider um, or even to a trusted urgent care um, if you feel like you're going to need this, number one. Number two, uh, you still need a positive PCR test um, to prove that you, you do have COVID and that you do. Well, let, let me interrupt there for a moment. The positive PCR test. The uh, test that the government sent us that we have sitting in our homes, that uh, our, P- our COVID tests, are those PCR tests? No, those are the rapids. Yeah. So anything that you can do in 15 minutes at home is a rapid test. Those are best um, to see if you're positive. Those are really good at telling you if you're positive and you have symptoms. So you kind of want to keep those on the shelf for like emergencies. You're, you're getting new symptoms, cough, fever. 
um, new congestion, sore throat, those will help tell you you're positive, but they're not the gold standard. And you're not going to get a treatment based off of uh, a rapid test in most cases. You're going to need the better, like CVS, Walgreens, um, you know, type of PCR test or one you have at the doctor's office. So a lot of people, you know, they, they want to take a shortcut. They want to say, well, I think I have COVID. So uh, they're going to call their doctors and, and want um, the, the new Pfizer treatment. And it's not going to work. Um, they're not going to get the, the treatment. Um, the next thing is with only a couple of million doses out there and, you know, hundreds of millions of people, um, it's going to be reserved for high-risk people. And that, that's really been still the focus of the Paxlovid has been, um, you know, people with those really high-risk factors of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, asthma. Um, so, so the healthcare community is going to guard those doses. So if you do have those pre-existing conditions, it's still good to be pretty close to a primary care physician that you're ready to go to and know where you're going to get a PCR test if you need one and try to do this with all within the first three days of when you think you have COVID if you're going to want to get the Paxlovid. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of hurdles. Like anything else, we really, really hope this will be much more normalized. Our goal is this will be eventually like Tamiflu for the flu where, you know, Tamiflu um, you can usually get pretty easily through your primary care physician, through just a virtual visit, a quick test. Um, so, yeah, we're not quite there yet, but it's very, very promising. The uh, idea of being fully vaccinated, let's say you have someone over 65 who puts them in a high risk and they're fully vaccinated with a booster. Uh, would they still benefit uh, if they do come up positive for COVID? Would they benefit by going through these hurdles and, and getting the prescription uh, antiviral? Yes, theoretically. Uh, practically, uh, I'll tell you, after taking, I mean, we take over 3,000 calls a month. So I see, I see it all. <laughs> uh, so theoretically, yes. Practically, no. And here's why. Because uh, vaccinated people who get Omicron, or BA2, it, it's so mild. It, it just has. It's just been mild. I have not had, I cannot recall, think of one um, high acuity case. Now, if I did get a high acuity case, you know, someone's having some chest tightness, shortness of breath, all that, I'm sending them to the emergency room, and they're probably fast-tracking them through the Paxlovid. Um, so theoretically, could um, move to get this ordered for you relatively quickly, practically, um, if you get COVID now, you're probably just going to be a little irritated with a cough, a little bit of sore throat, and roll your eyeballs and say, oh, this should be done, in, you know, in five to ten days. Oh, well, I guess, again, if we get hit with COVID, we should still pay attention to it. You mentioned that you represent a number of employers. What are you uh, advising employer groups to do in the workplaces going through this next phase of COVID and the pandemic? Yeah, well, I really want your listeners to hear this, right? So, I, like I said, I work with several large, high-profile employer groups in their HR departments for health safety, uh, workplace safety. Um, gosh, I, I want you all just to really see the heart of what they're trying to do. Every single one of the employers we work with, as they grapple with and ask for vaccination status um, and, um, you know, new work environments, um, you know, they're not there to be big brother um, to 
uh, you know, to be oppressive or anything like that. They're just trying to keep the workplace safe. They're really in a conundrum. You know, nobody wants to go to work and get sick. And because you went to work, now all of a sudden your team has COVID and you're all quarantined for 10 days. You know, for every one or two employees you have, there's high-risk people at home in their household. Um, so just their heart has really been um, for their employees, the very best for their employees. Um, so they've, we've moved them all into kind of the CDC risk level approach, too. We've adopted this. So, you know, basically it's kind of a sliding scale um, with workplace. You know, what's the community infection rate right now? What is your particular employee profile? I mean, do you have a lot of young, healthy people mostly working outside? It's much different than if you maybe have an older, mature um, employer group that is in close, you know, proximity to one another in, indoors. So we're really, um, you know, we've really come alongside them as a third-party COVID expert um, just to kind of help bridge and, and help them make the very best decisions. Okay. So we're just trying to keep their workplace safe. Well, and I, are, are we done with masks? I guess that's probably the most obvious uh, visible sign of whether we're making progress or not. What's happening there? For, for the most part, I would say for the most part. So you live in a green area, which about 90% of the country does, and you're outdoors or you are with, you know, kind of a relatively small group of people that you know well, yes, you're, you're done with that uh, mask for the most part. However, you should definitely have a good N95 mask on the shelf or KN95, whatever your preference is, a good fitting mask. I know the government's been handing them out and just be ready to use them. Um, if infectious rates in your area go up, if you're going into a high risk area, uh, like I said, I just, I just traveled, um, from Columbus, Ohio to Texas. Um, so I definitely wore my N95 in public transportation, planes, airports, all that kind of stuff. Just keeping an awareness. Um, uh, so for the most part we are, but we definitely should not throw them away and you should not be embarrassed to wear them, be proud. You know, if you are higher rising risk and you're going into a very crowded bar um, and you're just not comfortable wearing the mask uh, while you're walking through this crowded bar, just be be a positive, uh, you know, example of just common sense and wearing it. Now, yesterday here in Texas, I saw a man jogging with an N95 mask on outside. And I just thought, man, I... I that just doesn't make sense. You're outside, you're alone, you're not within six feet of people, um, you're jogging. So um, I think we are for now, for the most part, but just use common sense and, and be willing to put it on and show it off if you're going into a high-risk area. Well, very good. Well, on, on that note, we'll, we'll call that a day. So Chris, so, so thank you so much. We'll have you on again as we're monitoring this thing. So, so far, things are pretty optimistic. We hope things will go very well. So thank you for joining. They are. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a good, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. And only my mind. Thank you.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.